Welcome to all of you in receptivity to this message. My name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For those of you that are new, I briefly want to mention how I am about to share. There's a verse in the scripture in 2 Peter chapter 4 that says, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. We are to seek to allow the Spirit of God to speak out of us those words that are not coming from us, but are coming out of the Spirit of God. So that we ourselves recede more in the background and God's word prevails over our own tendencies of understanding and explanation. There's a scripture in 2 Peter chapter 4 that says, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And that is what I will seek to do. I will seek to allow the Spirit of God to speak out of me. What you in this particular moment in time, in God's foreknowledge, have come across to hear as an individual and whoever else is listening, and especially to the corporate body of Christ around the world. It is important that we all seek to have ears to hear what God would be saying to us in our lives personally. And also what he would be saying to us corporately. Part of what I do to facilitate this is I cast lots on the Word of God, the Bible, where there is an equal chance to receive any chapter of the Bible each day of the week. And then I meditate on whatever particular chapter I receive each day, and that is done in a half hour in which I do also some brief notes on the chapter. And then immediately after, as today, I will be speaking on that particular chapter, but also the other chapters that I have not spoken on during the last seven days, approximately. I don't have time to go into the explanation of the casting of lots except to say that it was practiced by the Church of Israel before the time of Christ and was practiced in the early church and throughout church history by powerful movements of revival and awakening such as the Moravians. Today I received Hebrews chapter 11. And so I do want to read that chapter, but I also want to make uh, some commentary on wherever the Spirit of God would lead in relation to the other chapters that I've received in the last approximately seven days. So first of all, what I will do is I will read Hebrews chapter 11, and then allow the Spirit of God to begin to speak through me as he would so choose. As I seek to be in a state of conscious worship that has receptivity in the ears of my heart to hearing what God would be saying to me as an individual and also 
to you and those for this particular time before the consummation of history as it is about to unfold in the near future. So first I will turn to Hebrews chapter 11 and we will read this chapter. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God, so the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And by it he being dead, yet speaketh. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found, because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony, that he pleased God. But without Faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even a one, and him as good as dead, as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the sea shore innumerable. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country. That is an heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. 
of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in figure. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. By faith Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover, and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians essaying to do were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down, after they were compassed about seven days. By faith the harlot Rahab perished, not with them that believed not, when she had received the spies with peace. And what shall I say more? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah and of David also and Samuel and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God, having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Before I continue, I just need a brief drink of water. Before I begin speaking from this passage of Scripture in Hebrews chapter 11, the theme which is very clearly a theme on faith, I want to mention some of the things that I received earlier in the week by the casting of Lot, and the, these other passages definitely dovetail in to this passage of Scripture. And I want to go back to as far as um, January the 
13th on Tuesday of last week. On that day, I received 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And I briefly want to just touch on what these chapters are about in order to tie them in with Hebrews chapter 11 on faith. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul describes how he, he was caught up in to heaven and that it was so real that he did not know if he was in the body or out of the body and how he experienced and heard things, even things that were not lawful to be uttered. And he goes on to describe in this chapter how that because of the abundance of revelations, there was a danger of people looking up to him too highly. And he says, lest I should be exalted, and this could also mean lest he could possibly become proud. Although I believe the meaning is more strongly towards the fact that people would exalt him too highly. He says a messenger of Satan was allowed to buffet his physical body. And that God's purpose was that he would not begin to trust in himself as any sort of source of merit or worthiness. For God said to him that through this affliction, his strength, the strength of God was made perfect in him through the weakness that he was experiencing. Now there's another verse where Paul says, we had the sentence of death on ourselves, even to the point that we despaired of life itself. But the purpose of God allowing that in our life at that particular time was that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God that raises the dead. There is a tendency that is very subtle when people are at ease and have everything going well for them to begin to become proud and to trust in themselves. The secret of not allowing this tendency is to abide in God. And the secret of abiding in God is to be in the place that allows trust to grow in God. It is the place of humility that is birthed out of the secret of abiding in God, which is in the fear of God. It is as we choose to fear God that we are brought to the place of utter awe of who God is, which brings us to the place of humility, that drives us to the place of honesty, that also births even greater humility. So that we are not in a realm that is not reality, but in the very source of reality, who is God? For one of the names of God 
is Yahweh, which means the self-existent one. Also translated, if used with the vowels, is Yehovah. Not to get into the dispute of which word is the best to use. Yahweh, the self-existent one, which is also clearly defined in both the Old and New Testament, where God addresses himself as I am that I am, which is another way of defining an ultimate source of reality. Christ said, I am that I am also, declaring that he is God plainly. I briefly mention and interject here because this message is going around the world for those that are new and not from a particular background of understanding that may have been told that true Christians believe in three gods, that this is not true. Here is the understanding of the one true God. Not three gods. For God to be truly almighty as God, he must be able to be in personage in the three ultimate aspects of existence, which are beyond time and space, in time and space, and filling all space. God is in personage beyond time and space, and if he wasn't in conscious intelligence beyond time and space, he would not be God, for he would not be all-powerful over all existence. And the ultimate aspects of existence of beyond time and space, in this case. God is known in government as the Father, in the sense of being beyond time and space in government. He sees the end from the beginning as the Father, because he is beyond time and space. The understanding of a father is one that has experience through time. Also, the understanding of the word father and the meaning of it is originator. He is the originator of all things. God as the father is known as that aspect of the one true God, as in government beyond time and space. The son is the expression of God into creation, that is God and personage, in government in the time and space realm, which he has created. And if God could not be an intelligence and conscious intelligence and personage within the time and space realm, he would not be God over that time and space realm or be able to relate to his creation. So for God to be truly God... He is known in government as the Son within the time and space realm. In fact, Hebrews 1.3 in the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the full expression of the Father. Jesus Christ himself said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And he said, whoever has really learned who God the Father is comes to the Son. Because really, the Son is just the expression of who God is in the time and space realm who God is in his very essence of day, which I have not at this point explained to those that are new. And then there is the aspect of God and conscious intelligence and personage filling all space as the Holy Spirit. He is omnipresent, 
omniscient and all-knowing. That means that he can be in everywhere at the same time, in creative power, in total knowledge of every particle of existence, because he is attached to every particle of existence. No time to go into the fact that even top physicists perceive from all the particle physics and analysis from the Hadron Collider in Geneva, Geneva, some of them believe that what all the mathematics shows is something like the neuron structure of the brain attached to all and pervading all space, even where there seems to be nothing but emptiness. So we have one true God, one of the names of God in the Bible, is Elohim. This is the understanding of God in plurality, the Almighty's One. That's why when God created the world, it says in Genesis, let us make man in our image. It is God communicating within the triunity of himself, the one true God. Beyond time and space is the Father, in time and space is the Son, and filling all space is the Holy Spirit. Now, I just want to go on with what I was describing here after that interjection about this particular passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And what I say in the second last half of this passage also has some tremendous insights and understanding. But now is not the time I will go into sharing about that. I just want to touch on these passages at this point in time and be very brief on them. On January the 14th, I received John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is the account of the death of Lazarus, who was the brother of Mary and Martha, Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene and Martha were sisters. Mary Magdalene at one time had seven devils in her that the Lord cast out of her. And she was so appreciative of what God had done in saving her and forgiving her that she took a very expensive alabaster box of precious ointment, which was probably a year's living, and broke it at his feet and then wiped her hair with his feet in, with tears in her eyes of thankfulness and appreciation for God's goodness to forgive her and to deliver her from those seven demons. And in this passage of John 11, Lazarus dies while Christ is not there. And he's away for some time, and even after he receives the news, he does not immediately come. Because his intent was to raise Lazarus from the dead after he had been dead for at least four days. So it would be evident that it was God that did this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. And so we have the grief of Martha first coming to Christ as he comes back after the fourth day when Lazarus has been dead so long. 
and Martha's still doesn't believe that God doesn't expect that Christ would immediately raise him from the dead, but is thinking that it's going to be something that will happen in the future when everyone's raised from the dead. <clears throat> but Christ says to Martha, if, thou would, if you would believe, all things are possible. And then, of course, when Mary Magdalene comes, she says, if you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. And she's just in tears. And Christ has tears even in his eyes as he's touched with their grief. But he comes to the chim, and Martha says, oh, Lazarus has been dead for four days. By this time, he stinks. She doesn't even want the Lord to roll away the stone because she's totally focused on the impossible, on the fact that death has sealed things. But the Lord commands them to the roll away the stone. And then in a loud voice, he says, Lazarus comes forth, come forth. And Lazarus comes forth, bound hand and foot. And he commands the man to loose him from the things that are wrapped around his body that are part of burial so that he can be totally free. And there is a powerful picture in this chapter. And basically the picture that is being painted here in relation to faith is not to focus on the impossible, not to focus in this case on the negative or on the darkness, but to have such a moral persuasion in who God is that in the face of absolute impossible impossibility or ultimate contradiction, which is death itself, that we are not unbelieving but are, have a moral persuasion in God that can call forth the power of God that will cause his life to burst forth in resurrection, breaking through like a little mustard seed, the heavy stone above. It is cracked open because that little mustard seed, as small as it is, is so living. There's nothing in it but life. A moral persuasion that can break through the cold stone, the cold gravestones of death with resurrection life and can tear off all the limitations of the grave clothes that often enshroud our lives in the haunt of past experience that has been the cause of fear, the cause of condemning ourselves as unworthy that is caused in that condemnation our focus to be more on the darkness and more on oneself than on who God is. So that instead of having receptivity as a flower to the light, we are closed 
to the rays of light that begin to dawn at that darkest point before the light arises. It says in Peter that we are to let the day star arise in our hearts until all those shadows flee away. And so it is in our lives that there is the haunt of darkness like grave clothes that enshrouds our life from our experiences of the past. But the more that we recognize who God is that indwells us, and the more we reciprocate on who God is that indwells us and who God is that dwells as the Father in heaven and is expressed to us in the Son, the more the light shines within us to the point that all of those dark shadows of fear and of death in us are dissipated by the light so that our moral persuasion is complete in God and has swallowed up the consciousness of loss, which is fear. I could go and share a lot more on this, but I will forbear at this point and will continue on in the next few passages of Scripture before getting into Hebrews chapter 11. Zechariah 11 was another passage I received this week on Thursday. I'm just going to read the brief notes on this as I don't recall right now what that was on. God's relationship with his people is first based upon intimate relationship of fellowship, out of attraction to the beauty of who God is from the wholeness that issues out of his holiness. Now that's interesting because what I was just about to share before going into this chapter was this, that I did not share and I forbeared to share. It was that there's, there's a scripture in Psalms that says they looked unto him and were lightened and their faces were not ashamed. I want to share here this. There and that is a little more on the character of who God is, and in particular to those that are newer. The Word of God says that God is love, and more than one time in the Scripture. The love that is described in the New Testament with this word is agape, which is the highest form of love. It is a love that transcends feeling. It is basically a love that makes, always chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate choice of gratification. God always chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate choice of gratification, which would be less than the highest lasting good. And as such, God's love has great integrity. It is totally pure. It is so pure that it is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest thought, word, or deed that would be contrary to choosing the highest lasting good, that would be contrary to this purity of love in God. This purity of love is the defensive aspect of God's love. It is the holiness of God. 
It is the foundation from which springs another even greater aspect of God's love, and that is the ultimate aspect of this total purity of love. The foundation is in the holiness of God. It is in the absolute purity of his love that can spring forth an ultimate expression of God's love. This first aspect of God's love, the holiness of God, is symbolized in nature in the negative symbol. Everything in nature has a negative and positive symbol. The negative symbol represents this foundation. It also represents cutting off that which would go against God's love. Anything that chooses out of its own free will to go against the being of who God is in his perfection of love, in this purity of love, this holiness, is cut off from it. For if God condoned that which was contrary to his love, he would no longer be this ultimate perfection of love. And therefore he could not be trustworthy to contain unlimited power in life without corruption or be the source of it. But God is light, and in him, the Bible says God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. There is total purity in love, God's love. There is no corruption in it because his being is innate to devour with judgment the slightest that would be contrary to his love. But this negative symbol also is an ultimate positive symbol that springs out of this negative, which is like this foundation, out of which springs the ultimate aspect of this love, which is manifested in the fact that God could love us so much that without violating the integrity of his love, he would come into this world and suffer more than you, a mere creature, and humble himself more than you, a mere creature, and take upon him the judgment of our sins and absorb it and swallow it up and conquer it by rising from the dead as evidence that he did that. Only God could be a perfect atoning sacrifice for our sin. Only God could represent man. No animal could represent man's soul and body, let alone would a human being be able to because that human being would have to be tempted just as we are in every point and yet never sin in order to be a perfect atoning substitute. And only God could be that. And so he came into this world in Jesus Christ who was in all points tempted as we are and yet without sin as the scripture says. And in doing that, he, as it were, took that first man, Adam, in which all of us came out of and therefore were in. And because Adam sinned, we received that vibration within our bodies that is towards sin, that distorts our soul in rebellion against God. But Christ by being tempted in all points as we are with that perfect blood that came from God the Father because he was born of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary and not of man. With his perfect blood that is the blood of God, he took 
that first man, Adam, and through his obedience and resisting all temptation, as it were, took him and carried him to the cross and nailed him on the cross and became that second new Adam that can now live in us in place of the old Adam. And his blood was outpoured out of his life in love for us so that we could be cleansed and washed and made white as snow. And in this passage of Zechariah, I am talking about the holiness of God. That out of this holiness, this purity of love, does spring forth this incredible revelation of God's mercy. And it's only when we are receptive to the holiness of God in utter awe of who he is, that we are humbled to the place of honesty where we recognize the mercy of God that he could that God actually has the power within his being to forgive us because he has this capacity to become a perfect atoning sacrifice. And the word of God says that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, was slain before the world was even created in the sense that it was already in the being of God to have this capacity so that in, in a very clear sense it was already reality because whatever is in God in his being is reality. And so within God there was always the capacity to for forgive sin because there was the capacity of such a moral perfection within him that he could become a perfect atoning sacrifice, which came into reality in the middle of history when Christ, who is God manifest in the flesh, died on the cross and rose again. I don't have time to talk for a long time on this. I could talk way too long on this. But what I want to emphasize here is that the first aspect, which is represented in the negative symbol, the, the next one is the positive symbol, which is the symbol of the cross. That represents the mercy of God. And it's only when we really enter into the genuine fear of God that we are reciprocated to these two aspects of the being of God. The holiness of God's being, that's the integrity of his love, and also out of that, the recognition of God's mercy, that he has the power to forgive and to assure mercy because of such a capacity within his being. And so from the time of Adam and Eve till now, there was the recognition that there is one God and that he has the power within himself to forgive sin because of such a moral capacity within his being. And it is only when one genuinely fears God that they recognize the greatness of God's mercy towards them personally. And when you recognize the greatness of God's mercy towards you personally, you recognize the greatness of God's love towards you personally. And it is only in that recognition of what is ultimately trustworthy that there is a genuine moral persuasion of trust towards who God is that causes one's spirit to open up from being a clenched fist, one's soul to open up from being a clenched fist and surrender to God and cry out for his mercy, opening up as a hand representing selfless trust, and then the Spirit of God comes to dwell with your soul and spirit, like another hand resting against that open hand, forming two hands of prayer, also representing 
the new divine seed, the new nature, which is the dwelling of God's spirit with our spirit before Christ came and indwelling our spirit after Christ came and died because then our spirit and soul could be cleansed. And in this passage of scripture, in Zechariah, what I'm emphasizing is this looking onto the being of who God is in his holiness. When we see that out of holiness comes wholeness, for it is in holiness that is contained life without corruption, unlimited power and unlimited life that can be expressed in ever greater creativity that is ever enlarging in goodness without corruption. So out of the holiness of God is there wholeness, and out of wholeness is there the manifestation of ultimate beauty. And that is why King David says in the Psalms, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. There is nothing more beautiful than God. God is the very source of beauty. And when you see the beauty of a woman that you're attracted to, it is very beautiful, or the beauty of creation. But God, compared to God, this is nothing. Compared to the holiness of God, out of which springs forth the very source of wholeness and the very source, therefore, of beauty, there is nothing more beautiful than God. But this holiness is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary to his love, that quality that always chooses the highest lasting good. And in Zechariah 11, what was happening in this passage of Scripture, before we get into Hebrews, is that there is a description of a covenant relationship. And I believe in this passage, it would be good to just briefly turn to Zechariah chapter 11. So we'll just briefly turn to Zechariah chapter 11 right now, which is in the Minor Prophets, just after... Um, Second book from the, from the end of the Old Testament, Zechariah 11. Only a few things I want to point out in this. God is describing how his people as a nation mostly have fallen away from him. But they're still very religious. And they still hold on to a covenant relationship, but now it's just become cold and meaningless. It's just become an outward shell of ritualism and has lost the essence and the reality of what it meant. And so God describes how he will begin to judge the nation of Israel because they have fallen away. But in the midst of this, he describes the covenant and the mystery of this covenant in verse 10. And he says, and I took my staff, even beauty and cut it asunder that I might break my covenant, which I made with all the people. 
That's talking about the children of Israel. And it was broken in that day, and so the poor of the flock. Now, I looked up the word poor. It doesn't mean materially poor. It could include that, but it has the understanding in the original of afflicted. The afflicted of the flock that waited upon me. And it, this word waited here is a little different than the word waiting on the Lord that is used in other verses. It has the understanding of guarding who God is. Knew that it was the word of the Lord. There were those that had, there was a remnant that had a relationship with God. That had a moral persuasion in who God is. That guarded who God was in the integrity of his being and in his mercy, they were truly born again of the Spirit of God. And those recognized that what this prophet was saying was true. You see, the beauty in this staff, it's called beauty, represents that covenant relationship is first a relationship of attraction to God, out of recognizing who God is in the beauty of his holiness. The word of God commands us to worship him in the beauty of holiness. Beauty issues out of the holiness of God, as I said, because the holiness of God brings forth wholeness from which springs forth beauty. And so God shows that the essence of the breaking of covenant is when we've lost our intimacy with God in fellowship with God. Then the covenant becomes meaningless. It becomes a mere outward shell. And so he describes two sticks here. The first one is called beauty. And then he goes on. And he says in verse 11, and it was broken in that day so that the poor of the flock that waited on me knew that it was the word of the Lord. And I said unto them, if ye think good, give me my price and if not forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said unto me, cast it unto the potter a goodly price that I was prized out of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Then I cut asunder mine other staff, even bands, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Now here we're seeing the description hundreds of years, around 700 years before Christ came, of him being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Because the people had become so cold in their heart and their relationship with God that no longer was there value in their heart towards those things that were truly of God, so that they could not recognize those things that were truly of God, and they did not recognize, therefore, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, because their relationship with God became mere ritualism without the essence of reality behind that practice. They had lost the beauty that is in that relationship with God. they had become focused on mere performance because they'd become focused only on the holiness of God 
and had lost sight of the goodness of God that is behind the holiness of God, from which issues forth the mercy of God to them as individuals and as a nation. And the mercy of God in the Old Testament has the understanding of grace. In the New Testament, mercy and grace are more clearly defined as separate things, but mercy and grace in the New Testament is the same meaning as the word mercy in the Old Testament because mercy in the Old Testament has the understanding of grace in it as well. This, again, is where you see that there has been a focus only on the consequences of God's judgment. And if people begin to see God only in the aspect of his holiness and in the consequences of that, they begin to look at all the suffering around them in the world and the suffering in their own lives, and they begin to have offense in their heart, and so they kind of withdraw from God. And the next thing you know, God is perceived more as an enigma. And therefrom springs many other things in one's life, individually and also corporately. I could really go into this quite a bit, but I will forbear now, and if God gives time, I'll go into something far more enlightening on this later, if there is the time, because I realize I only have so much time to cover all of these scriptures. This comes, this relationship with God is all birthed out of the fear of God because that is what brings genuine faith. It is what brings genuine spiritual rebirth and the seeking of God or the guarding of who God is in one's heart. It is then that there comes genuine covenant with God and each other from the heart. When this is lost, there is counterfeit covenant without the essence and beauty of genuine love and thus hardness of heart towards God and each other that brings God's judgment. It is the same hollow counterfeit relationship with God that moved the Pharisees to sell their Messiah for 30 pieces of silver. Now, I want to share with you what I received yesterday before Hebrews 11. Yesterday, what I received, I ended up reading the resurrection accounts of Christ. I got Mark 16, but then I decided to read all the resurrection accounts of Christ in all of the four Gospels. And one of the key individuals that stands out in a lot of the scriptures this, that I'm sharing with you is Mary Magdalene, the one in whom Christ cast out seven devils, the one who wiped Christ's feet with the tears of her face and her hair and broke the alabaster box at his feet. The one who was with Mary, the mother of Jesus, 
and Martha when he was being crucified. Concerning his mother, Christ said, a sword shall pierce through thine own heart and the thoughts of many will be revealed. Many of us may experience trials in our life that pierce our soul like a sword. And it melts the inner core of our being to expose the dross that we didn't know was in us so that we may wonder how there could be such anger in us towards God or towards others. But if we have the genuine fear of God, we will not lose faith in who God is. And this is where we want to come in to Hebrews 11. But before, I want to point out this, that in all of these accounts in the Gospels, there was a tendency in the disciples to dwell on the death, to dwell on the negative. Christ, when he rose from the dead, was walking with two of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they didn't even realize it was him as they were walking. And he begins to rebuke them as they're telling him, you know, they don't understand why he didn't, you know, why all of this has happened. And he begins to share that with them from the scriptures, and then he braids them and says, you are so filled with unbelief and hardness of heart. And he rebukes them for it. And of course, then he comes to eat with them, and then he breaks bread, and then they realize it's him, and they're shocked. And he disappears in their midst, only to appear again when they come together with the rest of them. Christ says, be not unbelieving to Thomas, but believe. Thomas wasn't with the eleven as he appeared again. But then two weeks later, Thomas is there with the twelve, and there's twelve of them. And Christ appears in their midst, and he says, Thomas, you said you wouldn't believe unless you felt the pierced hands and put your hand into my pierced side. He says, see, I'm not a spirit. I have flesh and bones. Go ahead. Put your hands into my feet, into my, put your hands into my pierced hands and touch my pierced side. And Thomas cries out with tears and a great cry in his heart. And he says, oh, my Lord and my God. And his unbelief is broken. Oh, there's so much to share in this. It's so wonderful. Thomas was dwelling on the death and lost sight of the power of God in the midst of this trial. But God was merciful to show him his power. Now, in Hebrews, in this passage of Scripture, the theme is faith. And I want to explain briefly to you that faith has the clear understanding. For example, the word faith used in Hebrews here is pistis. It means persuasion. It means persuasion basically in who God is as you look at the various verses in Hebrew, and we'll, in Hebrews chapter 11. And so I will just point out these verses now in Hebrews chapter 11. We'll go back to Hebrews chapter 11. Interesting that we got all chapters that are 11 this week. We got Hebrews 11, 2 Corinthians 11, and was it, uh, yeah, John 11. But in Hebrews 11, 
where God has led this week. I just want to point out certain things in this chapter as we turn back to it now. In Hebrews chapter 11. And it says here, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. This word faith is moral. It basically means persuasion. Persuasion primarily in who God is. For it further on defines faith in this chapter. And it says, For he that believes in, pardon me, I will just quote that a little bit more clearly by finding the verse. It says, he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, I'm not sure where it is in Hebrews 11 here, but it is definitely in this chapter here because this is ad lib and not prepared. Sometimes it's not that easy to spot the verses. It is in verse 7, it's, I believe. Um, it says, no, it's verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. This clearly defines faith as requiring that we believe in God and that we believe in God so that we come to God and diligently seek God. That is because faith is a moral persuasion in who God is. And I've shown that the only faith that can be genuine is a moral persuasion in that God is ultimately trustworthy, that he is the source of ultimate trustworthiness, which requires a particular constitution of being that cannot be more perfect and cannot be anything less. And that is only found in the quality of being that I have described that God is in his love, which is first in his holiness, out of which springs forth his mercy and grace." an ultimate negative and positive of the universe, as it were, for sake of illustration. That positive representing God's atonement manifested on the cross of Jesus Christ, where his life was outpoured in his blood that held his soul. And that blood was the blood of God that can cleanse you and make your soul as white as snow and forgive you of all your sins when you cry out to him recognizing who God is and his power to forgive you as fully crystallized and revealed in his being in his outpoured love on the cross for you as an individual and for his creation, whoever will come to him in repentance can receive forgiveness of sins and receive the gift of eternal life. So faith is also the substance. And that word substance means, in the Greek, a setting under. It is the undergirding. So faith is the undergirding of things hoped for. It is the supporting of things hoped for. It has the understanding of 
a substance, and I have so much written here on it that I copy-pasted, that I'll try to uh, point out certain words that give a clarity as to this word substance. It definitely has its first meaning as meaning under. It, in, compar in the comparative, it retains the same general applications, especially, uh, ah, that's the, that I won't bother reading. There's a particular thing I saw here that I thought was really good, uh, if I can just find that phrase. And yet there's so much here, so it's not that easy. But in the, in the New Testament vines, it, it uh, basically derived from a present, uh, it just goes into a lot of, it denotes, it basically denotes substance. To be in existence. I guess that's the most I'm going to get. Oh, here, there's more here. It has the understanding of confidence. And I do not believe at this point that I can... It has the understanding of assurance. Here's the word. Here's the phrase. The giving of substance to something. It has the understanding of giving substance to something. It is something that is supporting. So now faith is giving substance to things hoped for or the undergirding of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Basically, it's saying that faith is a persuasion that is evident in one's life. in the belief of those things that have not yet become visible before them. And this is made clear in verse 6, that this is a moral persuasion in who God is. For he that cometh to God must believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Faith is also defined in 1 John chapter I believe it is chapter one, if I remember right. And it says this. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, even our faith. So the, actually the first verse is whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. That is the same word, pistis, which is the understanding of moral persuasion, in particular of who God is. The same is true of the New Testament word that is described, or the Old Testament word that describes the word faith. When it says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, that word has the understanding of moral persuasion in who God is, if you look up the various meanings in the Old Testament vines, and so on, which I do not have time to go into. It has the understanding of roots that are so deep that if there's a powerful storm and the tree is broken and all that's left is the roots, you still can't get the roots out because the persuasion is so deep in who God is. It is immovable. 
It is a moral persuasion that God is ultimately trustworthy and can be trusted through the greatest contradictions. And in 1 John, when it says, whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and it's describing it as our faith, it is something I briefly described earlier. It is the understanding of your soul and spirit opening up from a state of self-worship like a clenched fist in rebellion against God or like a seed that is a hard shell. You can also describe it as the electron spinning around the nucleus of an atom forming a nucleus of an atom forming a hard shell. The only thing that can break that hard shell is the recognition of who God is in his who is the ultimate negative and positive that I described. That moral persuasion in the holiness of God, that his judgments are just and right, even when it seems that everything is unjust around us, and that the unrighteous are being allowed to execute things on the innocent. And we can't understand it. But we realize that ultimately God is just, that he is good that all of these are the consequences of man's rebellion and their reverbifications through the generations and affecting in all of these injustices. But we have a moral persuasion that God must cut off all of man's rebellion and that there is these consequences. But we don't dwell on the darkness and on the death. We have a moral persuasion in the holiness of God, that it is beautiful, that it is the source of wholeness out of which springs forth ultimate beauty, and that in the end, that is what will happen. And when we come to the place where we come to the end of our own ways of independence and rebellion and offense, like Cain had, Cain is described in this passage of Scripture. It says, by faith, in verse 4, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And by it, he being dead, yet speaketh speaking of Abel. Now, in that case, Cain had the offense in his heart against the holiness of God, was suffering the consequences of this, the curse. All he saw was the holiness of God and had lost sight of the goodness behind the holiness of God. He had begun to look at God as an enigma and God became distant to him. And so all he saw was God as forbearing and a dictator. He lost intimate relationship with God and so he believed in God as someone that required performance, mere performance to be accepted. And so his gift was rejected by God. Whereas Abel recognized that he could not meet the requirement of God's holiness and offered an innocent lamb representing his need of the mercy of God and of his reception to the power of God to forgive that was within the being of God. Imperfect atoning sacrifice. And this relationship of moral persuasion is a persuasion in the holiness of God. But not just in the holiness of God, but in 
the mercy of God. If we genuinely fear God, we will recognize the greatness of God's mercy. That he has the power to forgive. Because he alone has such an ultimate moral per perfection of love that he has the capacity to become a perfect atoning sacrifice and indeed became that even before the world was created, as it were, and in reality became that in the center of history on the cross where he rose from the dead and was seen by more than 500 at one time and I can't go into all the strong evidence for the resurrection. Four lawyers wrote books trying to disprove the evidence and found the evidence so convincing that in the process of writing a book against the resurrection were converted. One of them was Leo, what, what's his name now? Lee Strobel, look up his books. The Case for the Resurrection. Um, In this passage of scripture, we see that there is righteousness that comes out of this moral persuasion. Now, if we only believe in a God that is like Cain, that's dictatorial and demanding, and that we can't have relationship with or know any assurance of forgiveness, then our God is an idol. It is not the one true God. It is, in fact, the opposite. It is the adversary, which is the, another name for devil. I could go in and explain how this alienation subtly creeps in to nations like the nation of Israel, how it even cre crept into the church so, so soon there was just a hierarchy without relationship and sensitivity to the Spirit of God as seen in the Catholic Church and in the terrible atrocities that were committed through the Middle Ages and so on. But there was always a remnant, like there was in Zechariah 11, that knew a relationship with God. Throughout history, that has always been the case. No time to go into that, as this message is now over an hour and ten minutes. What I am sharing here is important because Christ said, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find in God's people a moral persuasion in who he is that causes them to so delight in who God is that they seek God with all their heart and they cast off all the limitations like the grave clothes off Lazarus? that they have such a relationship of love with him that they break their lives at his feet like Mary Magdalene who broke her year of living in that precious bottle of ointment and wiped her his feet with her tears. So should we have a relationship with God that circumcises our heart and rends our heart of the shell of hardness, of unbelief, so that we see with the eye of our heart the beauty of God's holiness and enter into intimate relationship with him 
where, as it were, we wipe his feet. We come before him in prayer. We wait before him out of the fear of God and utter awe of who he is. And we wipe his feet with the tears of our hair, like Mary Magdalene. And like Thomas, we say, I repent of my unbelief, my master and my God, and we cry out with joy because we have the revelation, because the eye of our heart has been open, like a blossom opening up, or like the hard shell of an atom being shattered by that recognition of that ultimate negative and positive, that holiness and that mercy of God. If God could not assure his creation forgiveness, it would imply that he created a creation without purpose and therefore he was imperfect. But God is ultimately trustworthy and he can only be ultimately recognized as trustworthy in the reception of his being in these two aspects of his love the ultimate expression and perfection of that love and mercy, which reveals his love to us personally and his power to forgive us. And the more we recognize the greatness of his love towards us to forgive us and to make us his sons and daughters, the more we will have grace to forgive those that have wronged us and hurt us and recognize that it is not God that we are to shake our fist at because we go through trials and tribulations. It is the recognition that God's holiness allows these consequences to happen, but that he is not the author of these things. He is the author of goodness. It is the cutting off because of our choices against his holiness that is the source of all of this suffering. So God is calling us as his people in these last days to be those that are ready for his coming. The Lord is wanting his church to become a pure bride that is without spot and wrinkle. That means that in our church services, we need to repent of just having programs that hold back the moving of the Holy Spirit. When we start a church service, let's start it without worrying about whether there's people coming to the prayer meeting. Let's start our church services where the leadership and everyone gets on their knees and on their faces before God in awe of who he is until we become so conscious of him in our midst that we lose consciousness of the program or of who is about to speak. Until we sense such a humility and a reverence that we sense his presence, we sense the breaking of the hardness in our hearts. And there's a true cry that comes from our hearts and a cleansing that allows the presence of God to come and to fill the place with his glory so that we ascend into a pure worship out of intimacy with God so that we truly can move with liberty and the gifts of the Spirit and the Holy Spirit can move through each member of the body as it pleases him. And through the pastor, we also will facilitate each member of the body without a spirit of control. Let us repent of divisiveness, where we hold hardness and judgment towards one another and have such a love that, as it were, we would go to those that wrong us and that we do not like so much and have the love within us out of recognizing God's love towards us, where, as it were, we wash their feet with the word of God. And even though they may be far more in the wrong, we go to them. And we, we break the ground of hardness in them and wash their feet 
so that their hardness is melted through us being willing, like Christ, to humble ourselves as he did more than us mere creatures and humbled himself more than us mere creatures and suffered more than us mere creatures. Paul the Apostle said, death works in us that life might work in you. May we be willing to be those that love one another so much and receive the baptism of his love that overflows so that we rejoice to stand in the gap for our brothers and sisters. And then churches that are denominations need to repent of being denominational. Christ said that we're to receive one another as he received us. How dare we receive ones that only see things the way we do more closely than those that do not. When both truly love the Lord and believe the essentials of oneness with God. God is calling forth in these last days his house to be a house of prayer, his church to repent of being denominational, to come in to fulfill his prayer of John 17. Oh, there's so much more I would love to share, but the time is gone. We are to pray. It says in God's word that we're to give him no rest until Jerusalem goes forth as as a torch that burns bright. This is talking about the Jerusalem in your community. Will you become the place in your body of believers where it's a house of prayer and of reverence and of awe before God that reciprocates relationship with God to the point that it becomes a beachhead of his presence that breaks the darkness in your community so that you do not even go out. People are drawn in by the Spirit of God. And when you go out, you go out, and the presence of God brings them to Christ. May we have the vision to conquer our communities, our cities, and our nation for God before judgment falls, as there is not much time as we see the war clouds rising around the world and the economies about to break into total chaos. May we be those that have such a moral persuasion in God that when everything comes becomes so dark around us, we will be part of what is prophesied in Isaiah 60 in the first few verses, where it says gross darkness will cover the peoples, but the glory of the Lord will arise upon you. May it be so. God bless you all. Look forward to speaking the words of life again to you. Thank you for listening.